0: Welcome to the weave your bliss podcast. I'm your host Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. It is my immense pleasure to have one of my root teachers, my yoga teacher, Scott Blossom on the podcast today. We were in conversation while I was in Baja, so this is a live conversation. So again, forgive if there are any background sounds or any issues with the audio, (laughs) I am learning to record in person, but I think you will really enjoy this conversation Just to introduce you a bit more to Scott, he is a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine and also Ayurveda, and he is really so good at combining the science with the experiential practice of yoga. So he is, my teacher uh, has studied for a long time with Jandar Ramante, who's the founder of Shadow Yoga. He's also a student of Dr. Robert Svoboda and colleague and friend Um, So we met in the same location as I met Dr. Robert Swoboda, which is all things that you can learn in the third episode of the podcast where I tell a little bit about my story and how I came to meet both Scott Blossom and Dr. Robert Swoboda and Krishna Das, who I mentioned on the last episode, all at the same location in India at an Ayurvedic clinic. So Scott has been such an integral part of my life for the past 10 years because I've learned so much from him and in this retreat that I was on he was teaching all the distilled information about prana that he's learned over doing yoga and teaching yoga for decades now since 1990 when he began yoga he started teaching in 1997. So we talk a lot about this, and we also talk about his journey to becoming a Chinese medicine doctor and also an Ayurvedic practitioner, what really lit him up about that, how he figured out it was his purpose, advice that he has to other people looking to figure out what their purpose is. And we go into some real beautiful conversation about the decolonial worldview and waking up those things inside of us, those truths, those inherent truths that our souls long for when we're trying to situate ourselves in the world and how that is part of indigenous culture and and coming to something like yoga, where that knowledge is intact and how that awakens something within our spirit and what our responsibility to that is. And I really, really appreciated This part of the conversation, it blew me away. So, I hope you also enjoy it and get good insight from it as well. So, you can check out more about Scott in the show notes, find out more about the classes he teaches, especially the one that we mentioned, which is called Ayurveda and the Microbiome, which he taught with Dr. Robert Svoboda. We go into some detail about why that stuff is so mind blowing. And I will say, I got to be their support person on that course which is actually four separate courses that you can get together in a bundle. But that course was so deep. And so, I don't know, mind blowing. I used that word already, but it's really intricate and informative and practical, but also like a lot of aha moments were had during that course. So I learned a lot and I can't say enough good things about that. So you'll find out more about that in the show notes as well. And so before we jump in here, I just want to share that if you are a business owner, an online business owner, and you're looking for information, support, please do join my free Facebook group, which is called Weave Your Business Bliss. I go live there pretty regularly and give tips and talk about what's going on in the astrology and how that affects your business. But we get to really get into the nuts and bolts of business building, and it's great for people who are starting out or who want support on an ongoing basis, or they want to be able to have conversations with other spiritual entrepreneurs who are on the same journey. So again, that is weave your business bliss. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Scott Blossom. Hello, Scott Blossom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. You know, those who have been listening for a while know that you're one of my root yoga teachers. So it's really exciting to be here in Baja with you live and get to do this podcast. So thank you for taking the time.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's fun to be here together. It's nice to do this in person.
0: Totally. I want to start, like I usually start by talking to people about their path and how they came to what it is that they do. You know, you've been practicing yoga for a long time. You studied sciences, was it biology Mm -hmm. in school and knew that you wanted to do Chinese medicine, go down that route, become a doctor. So can you just talk about like, how did you know that? How did you first encounter yoga?
1: Yeah, all of that, the yoga and the Chinese medicine came about kind of in the second half of my college experience because I went to a city college for the first two years and transferred to UC Santa Cruz to, I had started as an earth science major and then I transferred into biology. I was planning, I was in the pre-med track and they had a great yoga teacher at The UC Santa Cruz at that time, and it was the first taste I got of it, and it really, really lit me up. And I noticed that it would help me with studying. And biology is a really information-dense subject, a lot of homework, a lot of memorization, you know. And so I just noticed that it would really just help me to regulate. You know, I wouldn't have used that word back then. but. And then part of my undergrad degree, I took a medical anthropology class, and that's what really changed everything, is when I got a cross-cultural perspective on healing, all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's a medicine that's based on Taoism. And I had started to read the Tao Te Ching and I have a twin brother who was at UC Berkeley and Houston Smith, the great author who wrote the world's religions. You know, it's a book that was written 67 years ago and still gets used as a textbook. So, so beautifully written it was guest teaching at uc berkeley and he was teaching all of his students to meditate and so my brother was so lit up by him that he kind of all his enthusiasm poured over into me and i started meditating and he was feeding me the books he was reading and so I was getting into the the Tao Te Ching and I was uh, just opening up to Eastern philosophical thought in general and starting to meditate. And then I realized, oh, there's there's medicines based on these spiritual traditions like Ayurveda or Chinese medicine, that they have this medical aspect and they have this spiritual practice aspect and um, that that sounded like a lot more fun than going to medical school. And after that class, that kind of changed everything. That was when I decided to go to study traditional Chinese medicine, uh, you know, as a as a path and profession. Um, you know, from the yoga side too. I think what I realized was I was actually in something probably a little bit less than a, a major depression, but I was in a kind of medium depression, and I'd never been in one before at twenty years old. And the yoga was reliable to actually lift the weight of that, and I. And it was back in the days when therapy wasn't common and I didn't even know to reach out about it really. But the yoga was working and I changed my diet according to Ayurvedic principles. And I started doing these things that you know you would call lifestyle medicine. And and I was suddenly feeling better than I ever had like a year into that. And so that's what really like hooked me, you know, to where it's like, this is fascinating and it's really actually working for me as an individual.
0: Something that I love about working with you, because I've worked with you both as a Chinese medicine doctor and you've been my yoga teacher, is that you do combine the spirituality and the science in such an elegant way. i was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, because yeah. I think sometimes people want the science to prove something to them so that they then believe in it but that's not what i'm talking about like in your perspective you're there's like an elegance to bringing those two things together Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah
1: thank you yeah that's well it's funny because i think i was i got i got inspired about ayurveda when i was in the medical anthropology class i ended up doing my thesis paper for that class about ayurveda and i picked up optimal health by deepak chopra you know, which it was, that was the, that was the early nineties. So it was, the book had only been out for a few years and that's exactly what Deepak was doing was essentially blowing your mind Mm -hmm. with like, here's some modern science and he, he was, he's an endocrinologist by training and here's the Ayurveda. And so that to me was the sweet spot. So I think I, I, I loved learning that way. And then because I was learning biology, following college, I, I helped to found a program of yoga therapy for cancer patients in Santa Barbara. And I was working, because I was in a, a conventional setting, it was the ideal environment to like try to use the lens of science so people could make a connection between what this practice might be doing to support them in their active treatment with chemotherapy, radiation surgeries, et cetera, that can happen with um, you know with getting treatment for cancer. And so... And that program that I founded, I taught in that for about seven years. And it was just, so that was sort of the, the laboratory of seeing how to create an experience that also included education that had a science and Eastern quality because the, the community that I was teaching to, they weren't necessarily coming to learn about Eastern philo- philosophy. They were They were in a medical environment. And so it was a very, you know, delicate harmony that was being established.
0: It reminds me of in Ayurveda, how it's like, they bring you in with the treatment, they bring you in with what they can do for your body and make you feel better. But the back door is that spiritual piece, which is so important to be aligned in that way, you know,
1: and that's exactly what happened that the patients that were the first round of yoga students, they just, they loved it. And I started the program with an incredible yoga therapist named Sherry Clampett, who's still in Santa Barbara and has a yoga therapy training. Actually. She's amazing. And had done a lot of work with AIDS at that time in LA. So I co-founded it, but Sherry was really the one that had the knowledge and really inspired me and taught me how to really hold those spaces in a beautiful way. But after a couple years, the patients loved it and they were really consistent. And after a couple of years, they started asking if they wanted the philosophy. They wanted to learn more. It was exactly that. Like All the biology kept them in the room at first. And then the benefits after a while, they were like, what is the philosophy behind this? It's so wonderful.
0: And there's, there's, there's like a seed here too, just to, you know, say like you have two kids and you can never just tell your kids, let's do yoga together. Like yeah. you're planting the seed with, oh, maybe this will make you feel better. <laughs> How about you? Like, I know you it give your you kid, so like you'll give, afterwards. yeah, you'll give t- just like a chocolate in the morning or whatever, but you, yeah. you put some herbs in that's there or whatever, days. you know yeah. what I mean? You know, I think that's a philosophy that applies throughout life. It's not hit it over the head, just like, bring it in and touch someone in their heart space or, the, you know, in their sore space.
1: And that's like, you know, for me as a practitioner now for like 25 years in my clinic too, it's exactly that, that I work primarily with Westerners and Westerners trust science. So if, if you, if you can establish something that's a basic scientific understanding that's actually accurate and reasonable and resonant with the eastern principles then taking them into the eastern principles doesn't feel like they're having to visit an exotic culture that they don't quite understand and not sure that they trust
0: so let's talk about prana you know i've been studying yoga with you for 10 years now The yoga that you, I feel like you've distilled at this point, is really about cultivating the prana, mm-hmm. and it's really about like developing a relationship with the prana. I think you even said enlivening the prana and having devotion to the prana. Yeah, and we're talking about prana bhakti because we're here. Yes, <laughs> at this bhakti event. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. The you know for me the my mentor in Ayurveda is Dr. Robert Soboda, who you know very, very well, of course. While I was in Chinese medical school, I read all of Robert's books. And it was just like, I was in that educational mode. And I know that as a Jyotisha, you can appreciate I was in Rahu. Mm -hmm. So I just had, and I was a student. So I had a lot of space and I had a very big curiosity. And so I was sort of for me, Robert's writing style, his logic, his whole process was so, so easy to to understand in a way that just opened up multitudes. You know, it just really opened me up. And so, the end. I was simultaneously, from the time of being in college, I was studying yoga with great teachers, including my main teacher. I started studying with Doctor Shandra Remate. The understanding was I was having a prana articulated to me by brilliant. Ayurvedic physician, Dr. Savoda, and by a brilliant Hatha yogi, Shanda Remete And the understanding that Robert helped me come to was that you could say the nexus between Ayurveda and Hatha yoga is prana. And you could say yoga in general, but really specifically Hatha yoga is so focused on prana and circulating it, uh, cultivating it so that it, it becomes the the vehicle that carries you into meditation and deep samadhi type of experiences. And so prana as a simple thing of course is called the life force, but its main quality is that it moves and that it enlivens all of the movements and circulations in the body and in the world around us. And so the Ayurveda kind of relates to prana looking at it from the, the sort of perspective of health and the daily rhythms and the things with food and the physiological support. And then the yoga uses the Ayurvedic foundation of how you cultivate a good good quality of prana at a more, you could say, terrestrial level mm-hmm. to then start exploring those subtle esoteric levels of, of the way prana circulates and manifests. And that's where practices like yoga and meditation become absolutely critical to hone your sensitivity to those levels that are without that kind of practice often um,
0: not available
1: or, you know, something that you can readily recognize.
0: And so just to put a finer point on it, like when we do these practices, when we cultivate our prana, when we develop a relationship with us, with it, what are we doing that for? Why? What is the benefit of that?
1: (laughs) Right. So
0: let's sell it.
1: My joke about that is that I'm, I'm a Frisbee dog, you know, like a Frisbee. You talk about Prana Bhakti, a, fri- a, do- a dog that loves a Frisbee. It's like, for me, the experience of practicing and having shifts and watching how, you know, the, the body can shift and the mind can shift and the way that those things like now, as I, I understand it through the lens of Prana, it's endlessly fascinating because it's just like the rising sun or the setting sun or rain or wind or nature in any way, plant and animal and insect, if you look closely at them, they're miracles, you know? And so this is like the, that daily miracle that draws me back because I've also seen it over 25 plus years support my health tremendously. Also help guide me into understanding, you know, mental health and how what, I, what it is I need to attend to within my own heart to keep going forward as well. And so so really, for me, the so what is, it's helped me to stay healthy. It's helped me, because I have a stronger relationship with it, it's helped me to heal things that are kind of sometimes, you know, people have difficulty healing, like injuries and other things like that. It's also been a kind of inner guru or inner guide toward uh, my, you could say, psychological
0: I am thrilled to share with you an opportunity to get a hold of my handpicked lay low dates for 2022, as well as success dates to help you with launches, with signing contracts, with making big decisions in your business. If you would like that, it's called the 2022 Astrology Guidebook, and it's at my website, weaveyourbliss.com. You'll see it right at the top in the red bar. So, get a hold of it. It's $33, and 100% of profits go to an Indigenous led environmental organization. So, I hope that's a huge help for you. Also, there's a link where you can drop it directly into your Google Calendar, meaning it's all there for you. You don't have to do anything, and you can plan around those dates. So, I hope that's helpful to you.
1: growth and healing you know so it does all those things it's for me it's the touchstone that helps me check in from day to day so that i feel like my life no matter how challenging it is has a, a movement forward i really truly now believe nothing's going to stay forever so if it's hard i'll just stay with it and work within the prana and the way the prana is in that situation rather than thinking i should be in some other place and that feels that level of of trust is something that I definitely didn't start with and has crept in slowly over time of starting to actually trust life and trust the inner guidance system that the prana represents.
0: Mm. And from the yogic perspective, you know, the way that we work when we're working with the prana, it's very subtle and it sneaks in in the same way like today you were teaching. And, you know, we're doing these subtle, we're doing like these movements to churn and to break up stagnation. And it's pretty easy. You would say like anybody could do it no matter whatever stage they are in life or, and then you slip in a squat and people are like, Oh, wait a minute. Their bodies are getting warm and they're having to circulate in another way. So maybe you can talk about that too, because I feel like in the most yoga is focused on getting a workout. Let's just be real. Like there's also other things going on, but like people want to sweat, they want to like challenge their body in this intensive way, but they don't realize that it can be challenging without being injurious, Mm -hmm. if that's a word, like it's not we're not moving towards hurting ourselves, or our joints. So maybe you can talk about that.
1: Yeah, so the, you know, I I hear you. And that's kind of like a little bit of that is that a lot of people come in through, you know, exercise yoga, but then they get hooked, and they end up going deeper with it. And so it's, you know, I can appreciate that the cultural ways that yoga has been, you could say appropriated for bad in, in negative and positive ways. But, um, the way I was taught was that, you know, fundamentally from the Eastern perspective, you know, the, the culture of India is where yoga and this whole concept of prana is really born out of, they looked at what's subtle being more real. They don't look at flesh and bone as being what's real whereas when you get into you know a kind of modern reductionistic scientific lens which is very common and often unconsciously worn by by people nowadays then you think the flesh is what's real and all this other stuff is more vague and maybe not as real. And so just simply by having the perspective that no you're working you're working with something that is the motive force behind all of the physiology that you can actually physically see or manipulate and this is actually what einstein won the nobel prize for for relativity was showing that things can be a particle or a wave but really the interesting thing about that theory is the wave has a pilot wave so there's a wave that guides the wave and that's the Mm prana and the east they got that you know and that and so working from the place of that your prana is not separate from your physical experience. But like you said, when you go into a squat or you do something where you do start to heat up and you're really starting to have a more intense physical workout kind of body experience, if you think you're cultivating strong muscles, you can feed all your attention and your energy into doing that, and you'll get strong muscles, and that's fine, it's a free country, and but it doesn't, it gets you that. And then, but if your interest is to actually cultivate whole body integration. The capacity for circulation to circulate all the way from the marrow of your bones out all the way to the surface of your skin, that's what produces something closer to total health. And so that's, that's for me been the orientation the whole time to the way I've been, been taught to practice is look for this experience to promote more circulation in my system. And when you're circulating well, you feel light and warm and you feel stable, but you're also, you have vibrancy. And it's just a, you know, it's a very obvious experience when people have it. They know it, even if they've never discussed it or had words for it, when they're in that space where everything's circulating well, their mind-body feels like something good is happening. There's like an intuitive yes. There's no, you don't have to be convinced or believe in anything because you're like, this is great.
0: Yeah, and I think what's interesting is, I think that's why people are so drawn to yoga, because they do get that experience. But then there's like, there's a refined thing that you've been working on. It's like your career, you know, you've been working on how do we get this to where we're doing the least damage to our yes. body and we're doing the most positive. So yeah. when I come out of your classes, it's like the piranha times 100 feeling of what I used to have when I was 20 doing yoga mm. in a class, which was great. And it was a great introductory experience, like you explained. <laughs> yeah, so we, we can do it in a way that's, More effective and less damaging.
1: Yeah. And if you're going to have circulation, I I think I'm going to say, like, kind of a little theoretical thing, but it's important to understand for this context is that when you're a kid and up until probably usually mid 30s or early 40s, your circulatory efficiency is excellent, barring injuries or diseases or something that actually really, you know, inhibits good and free circulation of your blood and your nervous signals and all that stuff. So part of the reason that children are so resilient and young people are so resilient and they can work really hard and party really hard and do all that kind of stuff and kind of bounce back. And then somebody gets in their 40s and they're like, they can't do that anymore. And they're like, oh, I'm not as young, quote, young as I used to be. Really, you could say that a definition of biological age is how efficient is your circulatory system, because when you go to digest food, hopefully you have good digestion, but then the assimilation of all that nutrient basis has to be circulated to the tissues, all of them, and then it also the tissues then have a metabolism of their own. Every cell has its own cellular metabolism, and it has to it has metabolic waste, and then those wastes have to circulate back out and be taken, you know, out of the system one way or another. And that sort of nutrient in, waste, or toxin out, that cycle is fundamentally, it's a digestive metaphor, but it, it still relies on circulation as the basis. And so keeping your circulatory efficiency is the way you slow down biological aging. And so at one level, you could say the yoga that, you know, that I've worked on over my career and that I've been trained to work in the way that I've worked is, um, is, at a very basic level about making sure that you open up the circulation through your whole system but then because of practices like meditation and and subtler practices as soon as you start to really get deep into noticing the circulation on the physical level something starts to whisper in your ear about something even subtler Mm. you know and the essence of prana you could say is awareness so there's a freedom that's at the depth of prana you're like you feel it in your body first, but then there's other types of freedom that are even more subtle, and they have to do with internal freedom, and you know, uh, inner freedom, men- mental, emotional freedom, and so cultivating prana starts to draw you into that direction of something that is even, um, even more subtle.
0: And you brought up digestion, so I yeah. think we should go into talking a little bit about Ayurveda and the microbiome and some of the work you've been doing with Dr. Sabota around that and just, you know, this idea of digesting things well for ourselves and for this community that's living inside of us. Mm. And what has Ayurveda known, you know, that now science is proving because yeah. I think that's what led you guys into this inquiry.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, the biggest thing for me that is just totally fascinating is the microbiome research and Dr. Svoboda and I just did with your, Help and hostessness um, did a um, you know a thirty-two hour course on Ayurveda and the microbiome last year that's recorded and you can you know peruse that if you're interested. But the the microbiome research is articulating Agni. You know, Agni is the term in Sanskrit for the digestive fire. And according to Ayurveda, there's 13 different ones. They relate to the the five elements and they relate to the seven tissues. And then you have the digestive fire itself, the, the Jartar Agni. The microbiome research is upending really basic tenets in science right now about what we understand about how, for example, medications work how we understand how the immune system works. It turns out 70% of your immune system is in your gut. So it's the primary driver of the immune of the immune response. Um, it also is really important things like blood sugar balance. There's something called the astrobilome, and the astrobilome is relating to the way that the microbiome has a profound influence on the way that your body regulates its reproductive hormone for, for everybody. And so, for example... If, you know, flax seeds are an incredible food and they've always been used as something to promote juiciness in our system. There seem to be, they benefit well, the tissues that really reflect a good, you know, good estrogen balance, you could say for, for everybody. And it turns out that the, the, the quote, phytoestrogens don't come from the flax seeds. They have something called lignin and the lignin comes into the system and it's actually the gut transforms it into a phytoestrogen that then serves the body. And the beauty of that is because the microbiome is in this profound symbiosis with the human part of your self, which ironically is, you know, the number of cells in your microbiome outnumber the number of your human cells by a, a number of nine to one you're 90% not human and if you just take it strictly from a, how many cells are human cells and not this this symbiosis is 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 kind of an amazing thing because the they are they know that their survival is based on keeping the human body and physiology happening in a good way so they're making these these you know choices about how much, how, what to do with the phytoestrogen precursors that come in through something like a flaxseed or even soy, you know, traditional soy products like tofu or tempeh or miso. And that, that for me is amazing. And it also is an example of the way that we're, we're, we're in relationship to something internal, that's very much like the ecological system that we're in relationship to externally. And that's, ex- that's the core, core, core of Ayurveda. The macrocosm and the microcosm reflect each other. And that because that's such an axiomatic you know, structure in the understanding, it applies to everything you learn that goes out from there. And so that's kind of maybe a long way to talk about it, but it's to say that, you know, one of the, the key things is the microbiome is really the first time science is now starting to fully embrace that we are actually um, a symbiotic being. Our, our nature is more like a rainforest than some kind of self contained organism that's separate. And maintaining its wellness by, you know, over cleansing everything and kind of killing off the bacteria around us the way that sort of the hyper hygienical impulse has created a lot of side effects and and some real problems in the modern world, like, you know, antibiotic resistant bugs and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And I would just like to say having helped facilitate or hold the space for these courses that you taught over 32 hours or whatever. (laughs) that it's deep. The stuff yeah. is really deep. And those courses are meant to be practical. They're not just yeah. like heady. That's right. They actually have really incredible tips for the different microbiomes of the body and, right. and how to keep our, our gut brain access. So yes. our mental health in good check, yeah. working with our oral hygiene, which you may be like, well, I don't know. I brush yeah. my teeth. But like what we, what you went into in those courses was deep, you yeah. know, and it was like next level. If yeah. you want to really refine the way that you're dealing with your oral hygiene or or to maintain your, you know, your teeth in good stead, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's deep. So I just want to say that and we'll definitely put the links in our show
1: notes. It's funny that you mentioned that because for me going into that part of the course when we did the oral microbiome, I didn't expect it to be but the oral microbiome was maybe the most mind-blowing part of all of the studies even after we had looked at the brain gut connection which is incredibly deep and fascinating but you know really to make the connection that your brain health starts with your oral microbiome Mm -hmm. you know your heart health is profoundly impacted your sexual function profoundly impacted by your oral microbiome and so you know like you were saying so ayurveda Ayurveda was articulating this before there was science to make a comparison to. But again, being a Westerner and coming out of a biological and scientifically oriented culture, it's so wonderful and enjoyable, literally, for me to see when the science starts to come out with things that really point to not that a part of Ayurveda is good for your microbiome, like the herbs or the food. It's actually the whole thing. Ayurveda, right from its core concepts was oriented around an understanding that we're just starting to come into because of the, the brilliant research coming out of, you know microbiome research.) <music>
0: If you are looking for better ways to understand astrology and yourself, you are in luck because I have a course out now called The Planets, and it goes in depth into the stories of the planets, their characteristics, how we can have a relationship with them, how they may afflict us and what to do about it. You also learn a lot about karma, about Vedic astrology and what it is, where it originates from, how to read your chart. So it's a pretty in-depth look and a helpful tool for you to better understand astrology. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to weaveyourbliss.teachable.com. You'll see the planets there and you can click through and learn more. So kind of taking this in another direction. And actually, before I do that, I want to say like, I have your chart here. You're, (laughs) you know, you're an Aquarius rising for those people who want to kind of have context on what we just talked about and how amazing all the things were that you were sharing. It's like having Rahu and Mars in Aquarius it's all about the body. Your work mm. is about the body. It's about being innovative. It's about taking things and, and bringing a new perspective and like blowing people's minds, mm. which is, you know, you yeah, enjoy that. Don't you?
1: <laughs> I, I, was, I was literally just noting, okay, I'm going to remember that it's all about the body and it is. You know, putting things together to, to light people up. That's mm-hmm. definitely I get great joy out of that.
0: Yeah. So you're, it's like, you're a, an innovator from the future, bringing us information about the body. So that's kind of cool. And Aquariuses are always thinking about like, how can we make this novel, interesting, bring in something unexpected? There's that, that energy of carrying the pot of magic. in. so that leads me to this next question, which is, what does it mean to you to live in your purpose? Or if you want to share how you figured that out or how you are figuring Mm -hmm. that out, like, Mm That would be great because that's the topic of this podcast.
1: Great. Yeah. Um, when I was in that medical anthropology class, the, the, the constellations <laughs> and the planets were, must have been extremely aligned because that class changed everything. In the sense of, I did my paper and it just turned out that Dr. Vasant Lad, who Dr. Sabota lived with when he was studying Ayurveda in India back in the 70s, and who, you know, received sort of, you could say, Ganesh Bhakti from, and a lot of like beautiful, beautiful elements that I've, you know, been able to be blessed to participate in practices with Dr. Sabota over the years. and. As well. Dr. Ladd came, I was at UC Santa Cruz, and he came to a place called Mount Madonna, which is a Hanuman temple in Watsonville. It's like one of the only two Hanuman temples in the country, but it's a beautiful spiritual community. And he came there to teach because they host uh, educational programs. And so I was like, okay, I should sign up for this since I'm researching Ayurveda. And I had no idea that I was walking in to be in the presence of, you know, one of the most deeply influential and profoundly eloquent teachers of ayurveda to westerners and but just suffice to say that that as soon as i studied with him something dropped in where i knew my interest and also i give credit to deepak chopra because i was like i want to be involved in this integrative space i want to be involved in this conversation that is about integrating science and these you know could say traditional forms of, of of science and knowledge about health and so that was it You know, it was really, and then it was really clear and I was only like 23 years old. So it's like, okay, well, I could study Chinese medicine for four years instead of going to get a master's thesis and or a master's degree in biology, I'll go study Chinese medicine and then I could study Ayurveda. And for me at that time, it didn't. I didn't think that, oh my gosh, this is going to take me eight to 10 years to get this done. I didn't care. Time didn't seem to be an issue at all. So it sort of set me on this kind of course that was closer to more like 11 or 12 years of like taking these these long deep dives into studying Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine and then Ayurveda and really um, getting a clear sense that it could be applied both like in a in a medical context, like with the cancer patients, but it can also be a way to be a more effective doctor, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to really, again, work in conventional settings, work in a clinical setting with one-on-one patient care like I do now, in a way that was going to land more deeply and profoundly and give people real depth and, and and self-determining qualities. I think that's a huge thing, you know, the, the term uh, regeneration is really big right now. And there's a an incredible teacher named Carol Sanford who's kind of like the grandmother of regenerative um, business. Actually, she's just deep. Anybody that wants to, you know, encounter a she's eighty in her eighties now, and she's incredible. But she really defines regeneration in a lot of ways about imparting the capacity to self determine your evolution. Like you're getting skills so that you don't have a roadmap and rules you're actually being adaptable and flexible and you can actually come to any situation and ask what's my relationship to this situation so that my own benefit could potentially ripple out. And it's, it's beneficial to the relationships to other people, to the more than human world in those environments. And that, that was, I, I would say that's, that was the germ of my purpose, you know? And then it was like, well, I'll express that as a, traditional Chinese medical slash Ayurvedic practitioner and a yoga teacher.
0: Mm -hmm. So what would you say to someone who's trying to figure out what their purpose is when it doesn't drop in so easily?
1: Yeah, I would say first look hard, you know, get a little anthropological and a little bit sociological and psychological and just look hard at the messaging in whatever family culture you grew up with and societal culture you grew up with because sometimes and there's lots of great movies about this about you know, that inspire you to be your, your, yourself, even when your environment doesn't necessarily recognize or value the thing that you truly are. It's like some people are naturally going to be in more, you could say, conventional roles in society, and they thrive in that place, and they're, they're doing that work because it really is. It feels great for them. They have, they have an orientation to the way they show up for their, themselves and their community, and they could be some kind of conventional role you know, you name it. And then some people have a less conventional role to play. And that's the one that's harder to find, especially if they're feeling like, Oh, my purpose isn't dropping in for me. I was a frisbee dog for all of this stuff. I'm literally, I dreamed herbs. I dreamed about yoga. Like it was so, I was such, I was so naturally drawn to it that, it never felt like work even when I was going through four-year-long courses and having big tests and medical licensure and all that. It never felt like it was a means to an end. I was in it. I was I was already living what I wanted. And so just sort of test the air and find out which way the wind's blowing you towards. Like again, it's simple to say, but like the thing that is effortless and joyful for you to do, that ideally you see how it's going to you know, benefit your community, you know, and the relationships that you're in. It's because it's not just for you, you know, your purpose is going to ripple out no matter what.
0: I love it. Um. So, you know, we've been in this pandemic now for two plus years, yeah. feeling so, it's amazing to be here and have everyone have been tested and, you know, we can feel safe to like hug and be present here, but that's not the case for most people. A lot of people are still dealing with the real reality, which we'll all be going back to as yeah. well. Yeah. So I'm just curious if you could talk about having a practice, having community, like what are those things that have helped you make it through this period? And what would you say to somebody who is having a really hard time during this period?
1: Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. Just again, so much, um, there's so much collective grief and there's so much collective um, anxiety and fear and anger. When you get one of those emotions intensely, it's, it's, it's challenging, but you get all of them or you get a constellation of those. And you need to have extremely mature mental health skills to manage that. And you're still kind of like, you know, if somebody's really strong and you load them down with a load and they're right at the level of like, they can still hold it, but it's a lot so even i would say even the most skilled and wise people are are feeling the strain feeling the intensity and so for folks that are maybe you know in a space where it's overwhelming them it's so it's so widespread so first just to like again just kind of name the problem and just acknowledge this is a hard time for people and so if it's hard it's hard and so then it's it's a kind of that 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 Part of it is to say, this is where I'm at and I need to honor this. So what can I potentially learn from it? And I know for me, um, I throughout the pandemic, and I know a lot of folks that did this, that I have, my instinct has been to be really, really careful with basics to slow everything down. Am I getting enough sleep? Am I resting? You know, there's a difference between going to sleep and doing some deep relaxation. I do both on the daily, like where I take time in the afternoon pretty much daily and I make sure I get 20, 25 minutes of deep relaxation. And sometimes I end up napping in that time and sometimes the nap is more than 25 minutes. But because I've been so regular, it's a pretty, it's pretty much around that like 20, 25 minutes just to drop in and have my nervous system release completely has been critical and then also for me i've relied on mental health professionals i actually have budgeted and said okay i'm gonna eschew some of these other things that i might want to do as like that are recreational that i enjoy just from a budgetary standpoint of like if i don't have the budget to do it at all whether it's a time budget or a money budget what i had to get really essential and for me the mental health piece working with psychologists and um and you know, just mental health specialists in different ways. My mother died during the pandemic. Now she had Alzheimer's and it was a natural death. She didn't die of, of, of COVID, but it was right in the middle of it. And that was another one that really took me deeply into looking at my ancestry and, and prayer. You know, I started to pray from a place, I prayed for her and there's this beautiful practice in the Tibetan tradition of taking 49 days after somebody dies to pray for them. Every day you do the same thing, you nourish them as they're traveling through the Bardo and um, they're transitioning into the ancestor realm, that that was such a boon because I realized like old school mental health practices have a lot to do with prayer and singing. You know, so for me, it's chanting. And for me, particularly the Hanuman Chalisa has been a through line to the whole pandemic where it got really clear for me very quickly, especially after my mother passed, that that singing that prayer was absolutely critical to some kind of way that I was being able to keep walking forward, be a support for my kids be a support for my family, be a support for my patients and my friends and community, be in some kind of sense of, okay, we're all in this together and and I'm going to show up with some days just a little bit that I can give because I'm so overwhelmed by my own grief and feelings, but nonetheless feeling like um, I really had to constellate an, an important group of things from the physical practices that I've learned from Ayurvedic Vedic daily routine to really, really heavily uh, focusing on mental health during the whole pandemic.
0: I love that you brought in the ancestors too, because one thing I've been loving about the practice with you lately is this like honoring the land that we're on honoring the ancestors of this land, honoring your own ancestors, honoring the ancestors of the lineage of yoga that that brought it to us. You know, and we practice some traditional Native things on our land. And so we always think about the people who held this tradition while they were being oppressed. You know, it's just so powerful to start your practice there and to be awake to the reality, which is that If we didn't have those people holding these traditions, if we didn't have people caretaking this land, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have the privileges that we have. And so I've been really appreciating that. I know you and I both are very dedicated to racial justice and all of those issues that were brought up after the murder of George Floyd. So I don't know if you have any words you want to say about that, why that's so important to you or what you think other yoga teachers Should consider.
1: Yeah, you know, the the issue of cultural appropriation that's part of just any kind of inquiry, even a cursory inquiry into racial justice, is, you know, the recognition of the way that colonialism and the economy, the capitalist economy that came from a colonial mindset was very acquisitive. You know, not to and that's a descriptive term. You know, you can I can go into all kinds of opinions about good and bad and all that kind of stuff. But there was the fact is it's an undeniable fact that there was massive exploitation of land and then there was slavery, you know, and the racism that, that underlied the belief that you could exploit another human in a completely inhumane and horrific way. And then there was the subtler level where the cultural appropriations that occurred were also like that still kind of exist in a subtle way of, yeah, this comes from India, but because I'm an American, I'm a white man, I pretty much have a right to do with it whenever I see fit because I just wasn't raised with the idea that you needed to ask yourself what was appropriate. It's more like if I like it, I'll just take it. Mm. You know, which is that's that acquisitive mindset. And that's what, you know, and I know you're aware of this too, but the way that the Native Americans put it is the, the, the term is, essentially means that the white people came with a particular disease of greed, which they translate, and it, and it translates as, they're going to be the ones that take the best meat. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one way that the, the, this, this phrase translates. Like they don't think about spreading the abundance the way nature you know, if you have one, and you're a farmer now, you have one fruit tree, you can't eat all that fruit, you know, so, so that nature doesn't just provide or try to take the best or just sort of like, it's not this constricted thing that we now think about scarcity with nature provides more than enough, usually, you know, in the way that food is grown and those kind of things. And so it's all just to say that, for me, recognizing that and I learned, you know, this from you know books like My Grandmother's Hands, and Resmaa Menakem's uh, work about how the trauma that the colonialists brought with them was unprocessed, and then they blew it through black and brown bodies here, and then the capitalist structure that was built around it. We're harvesting an awareness of that right now. In that, but that is also true that that culture, those Indian, those European cultures, they were already decimated they had already destroyed the indigenous cultures there. So it was just a repeat of something that had happened long ago, probably 5,000 years ago or more in Europe. That's when that all started to happen. And so what I realized is when I look into my cultural history, it's mostly Scottish, English, that kind of, you know, little bit of Native American in there from my grandmother's side, my great-grandmother's side. But those folks... The European side of it, I can't find traditions. So, the way I would say about it from the yoga tradition is just that for me, coming to traditions with intact rituals and meaning, making through prayer and ritual and practice and showing up and honoring in a kind of symbolic way life and the, the processes of life, that I didn't, I can't, I couldn't find that in my culture. So, it, it lit a memory up. That's a cellular memory that goes back to ancestors that I had lost touch with. And so what it's helped me to orient around, especially with racial justice work, is, okay, what's my responsibility here right now as a white-bodied man and simultaneously how do I start moving towards that thing that's whispering to me from myself about remembering how to live in sacred relationship, sacred reciprocity with the things around me? Because unfortunately, the way the culture is right now, the mainstream culture is not reflecting back that to us very much, if at all. And it's not something, so you have to go looking for it. And so I have a really dear friend who's Filipino and is digging deep into the devastation of his own ancestry. And one of the most beautiful things when we really talked deeply about that with each other was we both came to the recognition that we both actually came from indigenous cultures that were decimated and have lost much of what was actually the intact culture and that these yoga traditions and these yoga practices and Ayurveda and Ayurveda and traditional chinese medicine have been a way to relight that flame within us mm. so we needed to appropriate a culture but we came to it and luckily with the great teachers that i've had they've helped me see about the way that respect and reciprocity was absolutely essential to the way that you involve yourself in something that comes from another culture
0: damn people are you hearing this yeah. <laughs> You're blowing my mind. Yes, I've been thinking a lot about this. So this is exciting conversation. You know, we talk about it a lot on the podcast. We have people on to, you know, bring in that because I think it's so important. It's so relevant. And I really love the lighting of the fire that's there already because I feel that very much with my indigenous roots, having no one in my lineage still alive to tell me about that and realizing that that was strategic. That was survival to repress the remaining embers of that reality was a way to make sure that they were not going to continue to be suffering under the white colonial imperative. Instead, they were saying, okay, we'll pretend to be white, so you'll leave us alone. But in that, what some indigenous cultures say is that it went and lived in the dust. It's not dead. It's just in the dust waiting to be kicked up again. You know, so like when I'm in traditional ceremony now, and I hear the drum, I feel, it feels like it's coming up out of the dust Mm. and something really rich is in there. And that's what drew me to yoga too, I think. And I wouldn't have put it in those words, but there was something like fundamental that was missing from the beginning of my life. So, So yeah. So
1: beautifully put. Yeah. It's interesting because I had the honor of sitting with some Dine elders and they they said essentially what you just said about dust. Probably Mm. got
0: that from a Dine elder that I know that just passed on last year. Uh Yeah. uh I feel like.
1: Yeah. And, you know, another thing when we were in that circle with uh, the, the I'm in an organization called White Men for Racial Justice, that's a beautiful group, and they, they came to speak to us. And when we asked after we had, they had been presenting and we were asking, okay, what are some practical ways that you think is important for, you know, white bodied men to, to, you know, really participate in, in, in being allies? The answer was surprising because the answer that came back was to learn to cry to learn to cry for what has been lost not n- not simply for what was the you know the horrific treatment and expectation and genocide and erasure culturally of of native cultures and other cultures but actually for yourselves in your that you can't imagine you have been you're so deep in this that you can't even imagine a world outside of this thing that we now can look back on and say wow mm. this this was a really there was way too much Harm and, and horror that went into creating some of the ease that we now benefit—you know—and have the privilege and the unearned privilege to benefit from.
0: It sort of reminds me of a story I heard about. Um, I think it was a rabbi who was asked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he said, "It's not going to resolve because we haven't grieved together. Right? We haven't cried together. Yes. Wow. So exactly s- similar, man." We're going deep here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and you know, I do, I would say too, there's some, there's some important voices within kind of the way we look at, you know, the way we wake up, the way we become woke mm. that are, it's very important that we, we allow all the voices because if there's anything that's kind of characteristic right now in the political sphere is we're not having dialogues, right. we're not crying together, even though the, it's the people that see things differently crying together that heals something like the image you just gave. You know, and that, that so now in my journey with racial justice, I'm starting to welcome voices that are really deeply steeped in it and critical of the way that woke racism is being, you know, kind of articulated. Because we need to, this is a project, I think resma Menekum, you know, said, when you start this, you know, as, you know, especially as a white-bodied person, you're looking at seven to ten years just to get your feet wet.
0: And you know about that because that's the practice, that's you know, the practice. the practice is you go do this one thing for seven years and then come back. Yeah. That's the yoga
1: tradition. Exactly. So, and the beauty of looking at it from a seven to 10 year frame is you have time. You can, it's like you have to see the territory. You have to listen to all the voices that are really deeply thinking and are active. They're really involved and they've lived it and they're holding a the space from decades of contemplation, you know, like in the same way that, you know, my career has taken me into this body-based path of tre- teaching from, you know, a pranic perspective. People in the racial justice sphere have been there for, you know, since I was born. And those voices they really have a deep maturity to, and they have their own particular insight. And mm-hmm. so they're going to offer something and another voice is going to bring something else. And it's such a, a rich and complex space that it takes a long time and a lot of just consistency. I think if there's one thing about racial justice, just be consistent. Your, your consistency trumps anything else. Don't try to do big things. Yeah. Just show up week after week, day after day. It stays in the heart-mind. It's not a retreat that you go do and have your mind blown and then you forget all about it for a few months. It only really grows like the same way that a seed grows. You've got to water it a little bit every day for it to take root and something to actually start to grow inside of you at least that has been my experience and it's only the very beginning for me
0: and also listen you know like we're in we just had this new moon in shravana and that's the the placement of deep listening you know it's like there's something really elegant about the way things are moving right now to help move us through stuff it's like we've been moving through our own detritus doing our own shadow work we get to this nice new moon of deep listening. You yeah. okay, know, like w- let's listen for what remains. Let's listen to what other people are saying yes. and just be quiet. Yeah. And that's one yeah. thing I love about the practice is you got to be quiet so you can actually tune in and feel that prana. So coming yeah. full circle, you know, the prana is where it's at. Cause if you're in tune with the prana, you're going to listen better to yourself and to other people. <laughs> yeah well i've got some rapid fire questions for you <laughs> and you can answer at length if you feel called
1: i've been answering at length i think
0: but this one is <laughs> what is one piece of advice that's really helped you in your life
1: do a little dance and then drink a little water
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean
1: just means you know like you you like you have to it's the yin yang it's langana brahmana it's the it's that you can only be active for so long, and then you have to nourish, and that that fluctuation happens all the time, and and that you know you you, you set into it, and so your joy needs fuel, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Um, so when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself?
1: Nowadays, the first thing I do is I'll take a deep breath, and if I can remember, which is not very often, unfortunately, the mantra is just slow it down. And part of slowing it down for me is then I actually encounter the feelings that I'm having rather than encountering them and immediately reacting to them or projecting something onto them. And as I I slow down, oftentimes they are painful feelings like you're describing. And so slowing it down is a a way to acknowledge that that I can extend some care to myself to say, I'm this person right. I'm this person with a lot of anxiety or a lot of fear or a lot of anger. And that because I'm like this, I'm not going to be as capable to communicate or really serve relationship other than the relationship to the fact that this is who I am at the moment. So slowing it down has given me that space to break the the cycle of just reacting. Mm -hmm. Basic meditation, you could say.
0: So what is your favorite hot beverage?
1: pu tea
0: oh yeah (laughs) and your last meal on earth would be what
1: um my last meal on earth would be like a gosh i gotta say i just gotta be honest my last meal on earth would be like margarita pizza with arugula on it, fresh arugula. Oh, nice. Yeah, like a really, like, Berkeley, I live in Berkeley, and we have this place called Joya's. Berkeley is like a little mini New York, in Uh the sense of the pizza culture there is kind of (laughs) off the hook. And so, to me, when you get that good, when you get a really good tomato sauce, it's like, what is it about? Like, dough and cheese and tomato sauce, and and then, again, not too much cheese, but then the fresh arugula on there,
0: you know, it's funny. It just it,
1: popped right in. I, I was a little sheepish to say, but I have to admit like that's what popped in.
0: Why not? I mean, yeah. people are usually like, should I go for the really unground, like the thing that I would just love to eat? Yeah. Or should I go for like the kitchen? Right? Yeah. Cause I want to go out rom rom, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's funny because Robert just sent me an article about pizza a couple of weeks oh, ago really? where it was like this kind of side thing that italians didn't care at all about and then it went to the west and the west went crazy for it and then they brought it back and then they were like okay yeah yeah pizza everybody wants pizza (laughs) sure let's make pizza so it's just funny how these things are like a possession yeah i might want that
1: pizza with a cauliflower crust i love that kind of vegetable crust it just I like the texture, I like the way it digests. So. Mm. I do fine with gluten myself. I, I digest it just fine, but I like this. Well, I if like you're going to die
0: right after the meal, then yeah. like, just yeah, have what you know, the gluten gets you
1: a little stone too, like <laughs> yeah. a druggy type thing.
0: Okay, so I know you have a morning routine. What part of it is non-negotiable for you?
1: Probably movement.
0: Okay, tell us about a person who inspires you and why. I know we've talked about a couple, but...
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a person who's a who's a modern day activist, his name's Reggie Hubbard. And Reggie, Reggie worked for moveon.org for a long time and was actually really um, very active in the last election and was like in a very, you know, kind of principal role in that organization with their strategy for getting out the vote and whatnot. And, but Reggie is a yogi who really has a profound vision for the way that, yoga guides us, again, into relationship that makes us not remember to feel responsible to, you know, sacred relationship and reciprocity, but the way that those things that can sound so wonderful and esoteric, like sacred relationship and sacred reciprocity, actually manifest as activism. And so one of the things he's kind of, you know, I'd say one of his core teachings that has really, it's always inspired me and continues to is that the disciplined, committed, sincere practice of, of yoga or meditation, the peace that comes from that, the vitality, the vibrance, the courage, the compassion, the wisdom that comes from that can easily get kind of um, sidetracked by the quote, self-care, the, which he calls the self-ish care paradigm. So we need to look hard at what what are we doing this for? And if the self care becomes selfish care, and you're hiding out and comforting yourself, and, and and your right to comfort becomes this thing that trumps all these other things that are actually crying out for your love, attention, prana, that um, that that look hard at that because actually that same peace and all those other qualities that we get from committed practice they need to be turned in service of collective healing because that is the big yoga too. When the identity takes on the identification with the whole and as human beings, our natural orientation is to other humans and to animals and things that we can readily see and relate to. So if you have to start with your dog or cat and your spouse and your kids and your immediate community, like just breaking the selfish care model into a model of collective care and collective healing is really the heart of his message. And so love Reggie and Reggie is funny as hell too. He's such a good voice because he's just, he's kind of everything and he's a Prince aficionado on top of everything else. So his music his just his his sense of humor and his way of doing it is so brilliant. So he's somebody I really respect these days. And I want to give credit again to my teachers, like all of my teachers, have, they're just deep people, and they, they, they inspire me so much. So Dr. Svoboda is you know, one of those principal people, Shendra Remete, his wife Emma Balneves. They've all been incredibly inspirational to me. My b- primary Buddhist teacher at this point is, is uh, Jennifer Wellwood. You know, taught, it, it has, has taught me a lot. My my soon-to-be ex-wife, Chandra Easton, incredible, you know, Buddhist insight from her as a teacher, my children. Mm. <laughs> I kind of want to sing out Reggie because it's a little more of a conventional answer, but I have to own, like, my family and my teachers. They're yeah. the biggest gurus, you know, they, and they're, they're deep people.
0: Beautiful. Something people might not know about you.
1: I... I, I have this voice that I make whenever I see kind of anything close enough. Like, mostly it's like I was walking here and these little butterflies came around, and I go into this like little chirpy voice. <laughs> and my my son does it too. My son Tages, we both do it. But like when I see an animal, I immediately starts talking to them in this like little voice, and I can't. I can't do it on the spot. It's very spontaneous. Oh, but I do a, it too it's to it's my an chickens. altered personality. Yeah, yeah do to the chickens. And so now I'm finding that I think it's because the yoga is working at some level. I kind of do it for everything. Like if I sit long enough on the sand, I'll start talking to the sand. In uh-huh. that voice. But it's this little cute <laughs> voice and it just is nothing. But it's just all this voice does. And it's some little bean inside of me. All it does is just sprout, sprout, praise and love. Like it just tells whatever it is. It's like, conceiving like how beautiful it is Mm. so that's a little weird thing about me because it is an unusual voice and if I go into it in front of people sometimes that catches them off guard like they don't know what happened to me but I kind of like I'm 52 now I can't kind of control it as easily I I know hide it I told my husband
0: I was like this is just something I do because I do it to the dog too. So <laughs> yes, now it's in the house.
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: <laughs> Since we have a puppy, I, it's now inside our house and he's exactly. just sort of, he looks at me, but he's so loving, yeah. you know, like that's, that's where, you know, you really found your person. Cause that's he's, right. he's not going to say anything and be yeah. like, don't do that. He would never yeah. shame me. He's just sort of like, Oh yeah, that's the animal. Voice. Yeah,
1: <laughs> It's so cute too. Cause my son is 13 at this point and he's, He's got his voices deepened and all kinds of stuff and his and he really is a very masculine persona. I think he's fundamentally a masculine male. And his but he has that voice too. And I know I can see how much glee he has to be around his dad who does that, because it's so filled with joy, but it's not. It's, it's kind of a very feminine voice, you know, it's like it's, and it's a voice that from a more stereotypical standpoint, you know, people could ridicule him for him as a teenager and being in that super vulnerable, tender space of being judged by his peers and, you know, longing for acceptance.
0: Luckily, he's a comedian and he has excellent comic timing so
1: it's true yeah. he'll, be,
0: he'll be fine um <laughs> so what are you reading right now or is there a book that you would recommend that people read that has relevance to like what we've been talking about
1: yeah well you know lately i, I had never read braiding sweet grass which i know a lot of folks were deeply inspired by so good and so i'm really grateful to be swinging back to that and then i also i've been reading a lot of bell hooks lately all about love has been really deep And I'm late to coming to really appreciating bell hooks. I learned about bell hooks through my, my, um, child Tara, who's genderqueer and and uses they, them pronouns and, and, and is in college at UCLA. And it was in college that, that bell hooks was, was somebody that they started to really appreciate. So, you know, and, and, bell hooks, you know, just passed on as now an ancestor. And so I, you know, The All About Love book has been tremendous. And and Bell Hooks has this one quote that I saw recently, I think kind of sums up something so beautiful, is to say that in dominator cultures, and that's a whole kind of reference to, uh, you know, uh, exploitive, you know, colonial type of attitude where you can go in and destroy another culture, but dominator cultures um, often make the romantic relationship the pinnacle relationship when it's always been community that that that's a, a way things have changed too like we we t- the western cultures tend to perpetuate a notion that romantic relationship is the thing you need to be complete and yes it's incredibly deep and inc- and powerful to have that and I'm so it's so beautiful to hear about you and you know being loved and accepted fully by your person but that community's always been that and 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 that without the cultivation of community it's kind of like not being able to get a good night's sleep yeah. Like it's the foundational piece for your, your, um, your trans personal body is community. It's not your romantic relationship that delivers that. And so that for me was a little bit like an Escher painting where the, the perspective shifted of like, oh yeah, when I think about all the blessing and love in my community, I just, you know, I, I realized like, no matter what happens, you know, I've been going through a divorce and and no matter what happens in my romantic relationships, um, the the community when I made it the primary source of love, I was I realized it's like a geyser. You know, I have my if you know a good a good well has you know or a good spring has a few hundred gallons coming through it. Mine's gushing like that. There's so much love in my community. I'm so blessed for that.
0: Yeah, I love that I'm a part of it.
1: <laughs> yes, thank you. Um.
0: So, what is one thing that is bringing you joy right now?
1: surrendering to my suffering Mm. yeah ironically that's bringing me a lot of joy
0: (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for your time we'll put you know the ways that people can connect with you on instagram and where your website and your courses and things live on the show notes so that people can access those but thank you so much for your time
1: yeah thank you such a pleasure to talk to you
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day and we will connect soon on a future episode.